0: Good afternoon and welcome. I'm Sandra Peart, Dean of the Jepson School of Leadership Studies, and it's my great pleasure to welcome all of you to this event, which I know is going to be absolutely wonderful. Um, I want to take a moment uh, and welcome in particular the students in the audience, uh, of which I have a few from my leadership uh, course. So welcome very much. Each year at the Jepson School, we invite local, state, and national leaders to play an active role within the Jepson School and at the University of Richmond. They visit Jepson School classes, they uh, make presentations such as this, they interact one-on-one with our students, um, and they share their stories, their experiences, and their leadership initiatives. We've hosted state senators, astronauts, former U.S. Attorneys General and investment companies uh, founders, uh, just to name a few examples. This year, we focused our attention on the power of journalism to affect social change, and I'm honored to uh, introduce our guests today. Aisha Rasco is a White House reporter for National Public Radio. She covers breaking news and policy developments, of which there are a few these days, from Washington. (laughs) And abroad. Prior to joining NPR, she chronicled President Obama's final year in the White House for Reuters. She's a regular on NPR Politics podcast and a frequent panelist on cable news shows, including CNN's uh, The Lead with Jake Tapper. Michael Paul Williams is an award winning columnist for the Richmond Times Dispatch. He tackles some of Richmond's and some of Virginia's most contentious issues head on. He's received multiple Virginia Press Association Awards and was one of a dozen US journalists awarded a Neiman Fellowship at Harvard University. He's the recipient of humanitarian awards from both the Virginia Center for Inclusive Communities and the National Society of Newspaper Columnists. Today, With the assistance of Jepson School professor Thad Williamson, Aisha and Michael will discuss Leading with Truth, Journalism as a Catalyst for Social Change. Please join me in welcoming our speakers today.
1: Good afternoon, it's wonderful to see all of you here. Um, I'm gonna first ask my colleague Dr. Al Gothels. he is, please stand. This is one of the most esteemed social psychologists. Um, Oh, the mic went off. Okay, we're good. Um, Dr. Gothels is one of the most esteemed social psychologists uh, on the planet. His job today is to collect the cards from you. on which you will write your questions uh, to to submit and hopefully we'll get to uh, a few of them uh, before we're done in the second part of the hour. But uh, these are wonderful journalists. Um, I'll just let you jump in. Aisha. (laughs) please tell us about your, your career, how it's evolved, how you got into journalism, what you're doing now, and what you feel the role of journalism is in a democratic society.
2: Okay, well, thanks, first of all, thanks so much for having me here. Um, I am really grateful for this opportunity and thankful, you, thankful to all of you for coming out uh, to, to have this conversation, which is really important right now in this moment uh, when there is such a debate about truth and there is a big debate about journalists and what we should be doing and basically our role in this society. So. I, um, I have been a reporter professionally for more than a decade, um, but I started out as just a teenager tween who just really loved to read newspapers and magazines. Um, we would get, uh, I grew up in Durham, North Carolina. We would get the local newspaper, The Herald Sun, and I would read it. My mom, she got it for the coupons she liked to save, but I liked to read the newspaper. And so I was just, I was always into, and I loved like hip hop magazines, and so I just did a lot of reading, and I loved history, and English, and you know, was my best subject. And it was just something that I really liked to do. I took an aptitude test when I was in middle school, and it said that I would be a good journalist. And so (laughs) I said, that makes sense, like maybe I'll give it a try. And so I've just been on that path ever since. I went to Howard University. Uh, I majored in print journalism. I was, I worked for the Howard University's news school newspaper, The Hilltop, which was uh, founded by Zora Neale Hurston. Um, and I eventually became editor in chief of that. And after Howard, I worked at Reuters, which is a news agency, kind of like the AP. And I covered energy policy for many years in D.C. And after that, I eventually ended up covering the White House. And I covered the last year of the Obama administration. And I have covered all 25 years of the Trump administration. No, it's only been three. It's, only been three. Uh, it's
0: been
2: a long, it's been a long three years. Uh, just busy, I would say. It has just been very busy. Um, these past three years, and now we have an impeachment, uh, which is historic and amazing to be covering, uh, and this is only the third uh, impeachment trial for a president that we've had in our nation's history. Uh, And what is incredible about this moment is there's just, as I said, a real debate over what the truth is and does the truth even matter. I believe that the truth does still matter. I believe that it is important to speak truth to power. I believe that there are still questions that deserve to be answered. Uh, and I don't believe that, you know, th- that we live in a world where nothing is knowable and everything is just opinion. Mm-hmm. I think there are still facts. And I think that they do still, it is still worthwhile to search for the truth. And so that's what I try to try to do.
1: Okay. Thank you. So, uh, many of you read Michael Paul Williams regularly, um, but we want to hear your story as well about how you've gotten into journalism. And I think we know your present position for the Times-Dispatch, but, but in this evolving moment, how do you see your job you know, to meet this moment in our democracy?
3: I um, st- kind of stumbled into newspaper journalism by inertia and accident. Um, I'm a Richmond native uh, who grew up in a two-newspaper family, as you can imagine that, in, in a time when whole city struggled to put out one newspaper anymore. Um, we had an evening paper, for the younger people in the audience, they're probably scratching their head about that, and um, the morning paper. The evening paper was the news leader, morning paper, of course, the Times-Dispatch, and um, I read it. Usually turned straight to the sports and then into comics, but I would glance at the front page and um, that was my life and I think in that, I grew to appreciate the written word um, very early on. I think I was maybe nine years old. My father started me on a subscription to Sports Illustrated magazine because um, I was a big we would have a Sunday ritual just sitting downstairs and watching all the football games from the time I was old enough to really walk around and At some point, I decided, well, I like to write. I love sports. I'm going to be a sports writer. So I get out of um, undergrad school at Virginia Union University and head to um, graduate school at Northwestern because an English, English degree didn't provide a whole lot of career opportunity. And so that was my plan, to be a sports writer. And I met one of my heroes at Sports Illustrated and said, what do I need to do to get on your staff? And he said, well, you need a couple of years of hard news experience like, okay, I can do that. And once I got in and started covering hard news, sports seemed too trivial to go back to. So I was stuck. But I kind of, um, I was a journalist, kind of lowercase, and I did my job, and I was serviceable, and I covered various beats, but I don't, I didn't really find myself as a journalist until I became an opinion writer. Um, I was 10 years in, and that aforementioned evening newspaper, the news leader had had gone under, like most of them have. And um, we were all told to reapply for our jobs, and list three or four jobs that we would be willing to do. And I saw that as an opportunity, so I marched into my editor's office in what was then an uncharacteristic display of bravado, and I, um, I said, look here. This is Richmond, Virginia. It's a predominantly black city. We have a large African-American readership, and I read our pages from cover to cover, and I don't see any commentators of color. I don't see any opinion writers of color. I don't see any young opinion writers. I was young back then, believe it or not. (laughs) I don't see any urban, hip, I was all that. All the things I'm not now. And so, uh, like the newspaper is supposed to be a marketplace for all sorts of views. And you need someone like the person I just described. And you know I can do this. I've demonstrated I can do this. But if you won't let me do this, you need to get someone who who will. And um, I walked out of the editor's office just totally convinced, well, that's going to lead to a whole lot of nothing. And to my utter amazement, they bought it. And like a week later, they're like, okay, you're going to start, we're folding the, the newsletters of the Times Dispatch and starting a brand new, larger newspaper, and, and you're going to have an opinions. And I'm like, okay, I've never I've written an opinion once in my life. I'm like, okay, <laughs> now what? The only time I'd written a, a, an opinion piece was when um, Doug Wilder was elected governor. And the managing editor at the Times said, go out and cover this from the perspective of what this means to an African American. And I was so... Uncomfortable writing an opinion that I, my construct for this was we. I couldn't speak for how I myself felt. So I said we, we, we. And I went out and interviewed like more people than I'd interview if I were writing a news story. So um, my first, I think my first column was about, oddly enough, um, Lee Davis High School. Um, Spike Lee had just put out his movie Malcolm X, and the kids were wearing. He was merchandising all over the place, and there were X caps all of. If you were alive in 1992, you remember this, X caps, X t-shirts. And so the kids at Lee Davis, the black kids, were wearing their X merchandise from Malcolm X, and the white kids didn't think much of it, and they started wearing their X stuff, and Confederate caps, Confederate t-shirts, and it, w- it became a big thing. And I just wrote a column, I can't remember all of what it was about, but just about this unresolved tension, this unresolved history. It's like almost 30 years later, and we're having the same conversations, but that was that, That, that's how it began. Um, And it's just kind of ironic that, yeah, a lot of the issues I started writing about, we're still working our way through, and there have been some progress on some of them, um, not so much on others. Um, uh, It was my view back then that we were very reluctant to discuss race, race pretty much, has been uh, the determinant of pretty much everything in our politics in Virginia and in, in where we live, in America, you could say. But we were loath to have that conversation at the Times-Dispatch, so I was determined that I would do that. And it was not the popular thing to do, but um, it's worked out. So,
1: so the next couple of questions are both drilling down on this idea of truth, and I'll follow up with you, Mike, first, what, what are the challenges reporting in this racially divided community when things that are true and obvious to one part of the community are completely obscure or unknown to the other part of the community too often?
3: Well, the challenge is I think in so many ways we are still so utterly divided. And um, I'm sure you've seen the stories about people who have one or fewer than one black friend. Um, For all uh, the talk 12 years ago about a post-racial America, which seems so sad when we, you know, ridiculously sad when we think about it. We're still very divided. And, and you couple that with what I would describe as the architecture of these sorts of divisions. Um, if you live in a place like Richmond, it, it's not happenstance. It's not an accident that we have these very different worlds. Uh, it, it, these, these worlds were built to be this way. Um, which is why we have independent cities in Richmond uh, and, and throughout Virginia, the only state that really has that sort of thing where this, the lines are just so stark between cities and surrounding counties um, that create these artificial divisions that may as well be our own Berlin Walls. And so there, aren't, there are fewer shared experiences, um, fewer rallying points than there should be. Um, I remember how heartened I was when I saw the RVA stickers in short Pump. It's like, wow, because people were ashamed to proclaim Richmond. So these things um, keep us, we're just in our own little worlds, and so um, with our own set of facts. And no matter how you try to present evidence, people still cling to their same sets of facts. And so I think in Richmond and Virginia, like in America, people are, have just doubled down on on how they feel about things, how they view things, even when we see the same thing. Uh, This impeachment is an example of that. And um, no one's gonna be moved from their position, no matter what the evidence is. And that can be frustrating. Um, So sometimes, sitting at the keyboard and composing a column, I feel like it's like me, like standing up and butting my head against that wall, hoping for for a different outcome. But every once in a while, you feel like you have a conversion experience. Where someone actually considers your point of view, and that's all you really can ask. But the, that, that's the challenge. You know, the truth truth is a very malleable thing. And um, that post racial America that we were talking about seems to become that post factual America. And it's hardened us to the point where we can hardly have discussions even with family members. And so that makes coming at solutions for the common good really challenging because you can't even agree on a set of facts.
1: And that leads to my, my question for Aisha. So as a reporter covering the White House, how do you report when this very concept of truth is under attack and when anyone presents evidence or data it can be dismissed as partisan propaganda by all sides? You know, and so to, what, what responsibilities do journalists have and also what do you specifically do to address that concern in your work?
2: The main thing that I try to do is to make sure that if I'm reporting or whatever I'm doing, that I have evidence and data and to back up what I'm saying, that this isn't just something that I'm pulling out of thin air, this is something that I have reported on, that I'm well-versed on, and that I'm willing to stand behind and that I have you know, done the reading, done the work, and I know what I'm talking about. And so if I am challenged, or if someone is going to kind of push back on what I'm saying, I'm armed with knowledge and facts to, to just not, and it's not really about countering necessarily because I don't, I don't view it as a fight, but I am ready to say this is what actually happened and can you answer that? And when I'm, especially if I'm questioning a, a public official or anything like that, whenever I'm in those situations, I don't look at it as a fight. I look at it as these are my questions. I'm trying, you can answer the questions. You have every right to not answer the questions. But this is where I'm, I'm not gonna let you just run around and not answer the question. Because at this point, what a lot of what, politicians and politicians have always done this I think there's a a boldness now that maybe wasn't there before but this idea of just answering the question they want to answer and if you ask them a hard question and they don't really want to answer that then they just kind of go on and do whatever they want to do I think that there is power and just saying, no, this is what exactly I'm answer- asking you. And so you can choose to answer it or not, but this is the question. and do you, do you have an answer for that? And so I try to do that, but I, at, at this point, when you, I think a lot of this is that there are people who have just, they are dug in on their side, and they believe that whatever, whatever comes out, they're not going to change their opinion. I don't view it as my job to change people's opinions, but I do view it as my job to give people a framework for whatever whatever they are, if they want to learn, I have presented the facts to you. If you want to receive it, here it is. And I also think that part of what we're doing is also laying down, not just for right now in this moment, but for the future and for when people look back. And they want to look at the record of what was happening at this moment, that they will have, there will be a record. So you can see that these were the facts of of this moment and this time. Because even with things, reality has a way of coming out to bite you, right? Like even when you can deny that something is happening for only so long, eventually, one way or the other, there will be a reckoning, there will be. Uh, consequence Uh, this is real life and there are consequences to the things that people do and you can ignore it but eventually it it comes out eventually there are consequences to what people say and do and so what I look at myself as doing is also just laying a record and a foundation for what the facts were as we know them we don't know everything but as we know them
3: kinda worry about that first draft of history though what it'll look like when we read about how the textbooks in different states (laughs) 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 say one thing and the other and how history, even old history is being portrayed.
2: I agree, I I mean, I agree and certainly in, I'm certainly not saying or being kind of Pollyanna-ish about the idea that people in power write their own history the way that they would like to do it. Um, I would just say that you know, in the space that I'm in, I just try to do what I can do in, in my space and what happens in the future, I don't have control over it, but I would hope that at least for what I've done, that there's a, a foundation that people, that there's a foundation that people would be able to build on and that it would be true. Yeah.
1: Do you think this change in the climate of how issues are, are discussed and are sort of national conversation, do you think this is a Trump specific Phenomenon, or you think it's a, a permanent change that will endure even with the next president? I,
2: I think there will be long lasting repercussions. Uh, regard, I, don't, I don't think that this is just uh, a President Trump thing. I think this is definitely an America thing, a, a human thing. I think that there are deep divisions in this country and I don't think that goes away no matter who's president. And I think that some of the things that have been exposed, I don't think that just goes away. I, I think um, a lot of what this country was built on were, or not what this country was, built on. a lot of what has happened over the past 20, 40 years, the way that politicians behaved, a lot of the things they did, I mean, it was just kind of norms in place. It wasn't because they had to do it. It was because they felt there would be repercussions if they did it. Uh, I think if you have right now where you see people attacking the press in really not just normal ways, but uh, people probably saw Secretary of State Mike Pompeo cursed out an NPR reporter and had her claim that she couldn't point at Ukraine on a map and brought out a map and had her point at it, and she has a master's in European studies from Cambridge University. Um, and he said she couldn't find you. Still trying to
3: figure out that empty map thing.
2: <laughs> they were ready. Who keeps those around? They, they were ready. But there are journalists who, who have foyered that. They're gonna to try to find out about that empty map. But it was a blank map. But that was Secretary of State Pompeo. I don't, I don't think, that wasn't Trump. Um, I think that he did that. Um, because that is the the place that we are in right now not that politicians have never liked journalists you know and I'm not saying that he's the first politician to curse out a journalist but to have someone at his level do that that's setting a tone and I don't think that tone necessarily just goes away because people feel like they can people have always wanted to curse us out and do whatever they wanted to do right We, we get on people's nerves we're asking questions you don't like if they feel like they can get away with that and there's no consequence, I think they continue to do it. Hmm.
1: Do you want to weigh in on that? I mean, what what, what echoes of the sort of what's going on in D.C. do you see playing out here locally and statewide?
3: Well, I mean, that's my fear. Um, that <clears throat> that march we had um, the other week. Um, I think that's a manifestation of what we've seen nationally. Um, I think if we learn eight lessons from what's happening now with, with Trump it's that who is in that office does matter. And a big part of his job is to unify and set a certain tone. And if we have the opposite of that, and, and the person at the top is, is, is dividing and demonizing, and, and, and when a, a city such as Richmond is absolutely terrified about what will happen when tens of thousands of armed people come to Richmond, he weighs in in a very unhelpful way um, to kind of feed their grievance, their sense of grievance. Um, So yeah, I think um, the risk is that this filters down and becomes part of how politics works on the state level um, where we have folks who are unhappy with the way an election went and, and take up arms to try to intimidate Um, uh, as a means of achieving what they couldn't achieve at the polls. Um, You know, I think this sort of thing
0: uh,
3: uh, could have, if if our local and state politics becomes like that, we're really at an end as far as I'm concerned. And and I don't don't think there isn't someone who's thinking I'm going to be the state level Trump or I'm going to be the local level Trump because it works. Um, so, I think that's the lesson we've got to send. Um, the people who were involved in the impeachment need to be thinking about what are the larger lessons here as far as the destruction of the, the body politic. So,
1: so I'm going to ask a, the next couple questions about, you our know, topic is journalism as a catalyst for social change. And you know, Mike, I've read literally hundreds if not thousands of your pieces and you characteristically, these are opinion pieces, so you find voices in the community that oftentimes are trying to lift up a particular point of view, or, or point Richmond, or, or the state, as the case may be, and, and sort of, you know, in a progressive direction that lifts up our better angels. So let me ask you, just this. this is more personal. Like, what are you most proud of of how the community has changed in your time during this work, and what are you the most disappointed about?
3: Um, I'm proud that we are having conversations, at least. And that are leading to some action that I would not have imagined happened 20 years ago. Um, we, um, last night I was at an event where we were talking about Fulton. Mm-hmm. Um, Fulton is a neighborhood in Richmond um, that was utterly destroyed in the name of urban renewal back in my childhood, back in the early 1970s. Um, uh, local leaders, Um, and the Richmond Redevelopment and Housing Authority declared it a slum and set the wheels in motion to literally flatten an entire neighborhood indiscriminately. And these were um, homes with some architectural value. Um, I heard last night that 40% of the people were homeowners. This was a very close-knit community that was so devastated by what had happened that years later, they would return almost daily to like the vacant fields that were once their neighborhood to gather and meet and just talk and and they just couldn't let it go. They never let it go. If you talk to someone from Fulton today, they've never let that go. The urban renewal never happened for for decades. For decades it's that empty. Um, And Richmond never really talked about what it did to Fulton. And finally, the city is talking and, and people, you would say unlikely people are trying to help Fulton and try to at least um, preserve Fulton um, in Richmond's memory with the Memorial Park and engage the residents and try to get the history down. So um, these are conversations. Um, slavery was something we never talked about in Richmond. Where uh, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, never talked about slavery. It's like it didn't happen here. And, you know, we are finally having those conversations. Hopefully, they will soon lead to some sort of action in, in, in Shaco Bottom. Um, the Confederate monuments were not, it was, they were just, they just existed. They were not something to be challenged. They were not even a source of conversation. No one, it never occurred to anyone to say, hey, what, what exactly are we doing here when we uh, place these folks in a position of honor, without question? and we're finally having those conversations. Um, what disappoints me is still the level of resistance to those conversations. Uh, it, this kind of unwarranted complacency that Richmond has uh, about its need to progress. Uh, I, I'm impatient, you know, I want to see these things happen in my lifetime, I want Richmond um, to start addressing and, and healing it's passed in my lifetime in a, in a real serious way to start addressing its inequities which um, are still being perpetuated by policy and by development and by forces of gentrification. So we have a lot of work to do in Richmond. I mean, We're having the conversations but that's not enough.
1: For Aisha, um, I imagine it would be tempting and entirely possible to spend all your time just covering the White House as like a soap opera you know and this happened and that happened but i know you're very committed in your work to illustrating how the decisions that are made impact policies and people on the ground so tell us about that aspect of your work
2: well so and and it is difficult i would say with any administration particularly with this one to really try to drill down on like what does this actually mean for people what does this How does this affect people? I think what I have tried to do is try to, when I can, take those moments to do stories that say, okay, this policy came out. What does this really mean? Opportunity zones is something that this administration has talked a lot about. This is a big tax credit or uh, tax deferral for people to invest in these low-income neighborhoods. And so I did a story on that last year, of course, part of the issue or the concern is how is all of this going to be tracked Um, and are people just investing in places where they would already invest anyway Uh, and they're just gonna get big money for that and you also have a concern about big hedge funds coming in um, and displacing people which is always an issue when you talk about urban renewal. Um, And so I did some work on that. I also one project that I was really proud of last year was just looking at what the president says. This is a president who I think he obviously will make a big impact as far as policy, whatever people feel about that policy, but I I think one way in which he is certainly making history is just the words that he says and and his Twitter feed. Uh, And so I did a big project looking at thousands and thousands of tweets, because he he tweets a lot. about the way that he talked about lawmakers and the way, and particularly, how he talked about lawmakers of color. And because this was at a time where he was talking about the squad in a very particular way, um, the way that he talked about uh, the late Congressman Elijah Cummings. uh, And so, and just kind of drilling down on how it was a very different way that he talked about his opponents uh, even at that time, although at this point, he's kind of gone to a ne- another level with Adam Schiff and, and Pelosi, but there was a very specific way in which he talked about these lawmakers of color, calling them, basically challenging their intelligence, saying that they were un-American. Uh, when he talked about Elijah Cummings and those tweets that he did over this like two-week period of like, 40 tweets or something about him, it was all about Baltimore and being poor and rat-infested and crime-infested and you know, you're you corrupt and all of these things. Things that he doesn't even say about his other you know, quote-unquote enemies, right? And so I wanted to really drill down because I think the president says so much on a day-to-day basis that at a certain point it can just become background noise But I think that it matters what the president says. I think it matters the words that he's putting out there about lawmakers and about, you know, just about people because you have people that are consuming that every single day. Uh, And so I felt like that was important to actually look at and measure what that was and how that, how that could be impacting people. And how that, to see that as a young black girl or black boy seeing the president of the United States Talk about black lawmakers. To talk about black entertainers in this way, you know, calling them just this week. I mean, once again, he called Don Lemon the dumbest man on TV. Um, this is, I I think that is significant, and so that is something that I've tried to at least shine a light on, um, and and try to put it in context and and provide historical context for what, for the things that he says.
3: Can't recall an American president spending, devoting so much energy to attacking American citizens.
2: Well, and, and that's the, the thing, it's, it's, he's attacking American citizens and then also attacking particularly people, in, certain people in a certain way. So Maxine Waters, LeBron James, Don Lemon, they are all dumb. Not everybody that he, he talks about a lot of people. And that was some of the the point of the story is because when you talk about this, people will say, well, he talks about everybody. He does talk about a lot of people, but there's a specific way that he talks about certain people that is different. And if you actually look at it and get the spreadsheet and look it out, you can see those differences.
1: Thank you. So next couple of questions and we're gonna get into our audience component. now are actually about journalism as an institution. So I'm going to read your quote, since this is an academic institution. We have to have our obligatory Alexis de Tocqueville quote from from Democracy in America, volume two, 1840. And he wrote, quote, uh, when men are no longer bound among themselves in a solid and permanent manner, one cannot get many to act in common except by persuading each of them whose cooperation is necessary that his particular interest obliges him voluntarily to unite his efforts with the efforts of all the others. That can be done habitually and conveniently only with the aid of a newspaper. Only a newspaper can come to deposit the same thought in a 1,000 minds at the same moment. Now, Mr. de Tocqueville did not have one of these, which is (laughs) a real question. You know, and and so in this evolving industry, what do you think journalism needs to do? Uh, What does it need to preserve? and what does it need to change?
3: If I had the answer to that, <laughs> my, my newspaper just got sold today. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's Warren Buffett couldn't figure it out. So, but it, it obviously the technology is a game changer. Um, uh, for good and for, for, for bad, and it seems mostly for us in ways that are very challenging. Um, A, we've not been able to figure out how to monetize it. Um, people are, are buying ads online and no longer buying as many print ads and, 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 and that's the bottom line and that's um, the crucial challenge of the business. Um, it hits at us in, in journalistic ways where uh, the Kobe Bryant death, um, the immediate re- aftermath of reporting was just riddled with inaccuracies um There were reports that all of his daughters had died um, there it just it just went all over the place and I think that stems from um, the need because of technology to get it out there as fast as possible and that really hurts our accuracy um, We've got to adjust to that um, That quote speaks to um, the power um, to uh, to Inform opinion, but what we have now with Twitter, which you might call the new dominant way of, of, of swaying opinion, is you don't have the sense of ethics that historically has underpinned journalism. Um, everyone who has one of these phones or a laptop uh, thinks they're a journalist now, if, you know, if they have a blog or something, but it, it, there's more to it than that. And there is a sense of ethics and, and that stops you from from doing things that are harmful um, that that covets uh, accuracy uh, above all, um, that that weighs harms that are caused by the words you put down. Um, and you know we don't get that with a lot of the people who are using this technology to put out the sort of functions that newspapers um, do um, you, you know, it's it's kind of a negative thing to say, but when we had just three networks and um, when and I'm going to sound like the old guy, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when we had Walter Cronkite and we had three networks and, and then we had um, four. <laughs> and you had your local newspaper. You know, information, you know, was concentrated in a way that you know, kind of made sense, and you could rally people behind it, and, 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 and it made you less, there was still misinformation, but it made us less susceptible to propaganda. And I think a lot of what we're experiencing now, it didn't start with Trump, is decades of propaganda. Um, if, you're, if you've got Fox News out here, fans out there, I, 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 this, this is about truth. That's a propaganda arm, um, and now it's functioning as a as, as state propaganda arm. Um, we've had a decades-long campaign to discredit the media, going back to Spiro Agnew, um, and it's, it's been highly effective. Um, someone felt it was very important to discredit the media. Um, ask why that is, if you take out the media, yeah, you've taken out something that is in your way, and, and you can pretty much do what you want so our challenge is i'd say our challenge is stand in business because um, i think we're as relevant as ever but the economics of the industry are just eradicating us um they they you know i i look at the young people going into you know, coming into our newsroom and and pursuing this career and i'm shaking my head i'm like why <laughs> what were you thinking but you know, I mean, when I went into it at their age, I knew I'd never get rich. I know what they're thinking. They, they 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 love this, and they are very serious about um, truth and democracy, and, and, and looking out, you know, for the little guy, as, as much as a cliche as that is, and um, that's impor- That's more important now. We're at, I think, we're in an existential crisis as a democracy. And I mean, not to be an alarmist, but that's, yeah, that's truth. And you know, the press, the media is at the front lines preserving that. They are fighting for democracy, they are fighting for the American people. Maybe half the people don't appreciate it. So it's not like we're not needed, it's not like, We're not relevant anymore. It's just an economic thing. It's just kind of wiping us out. So, all that's a long-winded way of saying please support. (laughs) You're, um, I know we're in this, these technologies made us think everything's free. No. Everything's not free. It cost, that information cost. Please support your local media. It's important.
1: Jump in on the same question.
2: Well, I mean, I think that you said. I mean, you you made the the key points. I I as you said, I don't I don't have the answer for the challenge, especially local media, like because it's so important. But what to do about that, and what to do, and I think even large news outlets trying to figure out how to stay relevant. How do they reach audiences? I mean, that's still a question. I, I feel like as journalists, there does have to be a recognition of the changes in society, and, a, and there has to be a way to adapt, and you have to be open to adapting to speaking to new audiences in new ways, because people wanna have conversations in a different way than they did them in the past so now you have people they want to listen to podcasts they want to listen to people and that's another way to tell the news they want to get it and you can and we we have a podcast you know npr politics podcast and that's all about us getting the news out there in a way for people who aren't listening to npr so most of the people that listen to the politics podcast they're younger and they don't listen to the radio They don't listen to All Things Considered and Morning Edition, but they will listen to the Politics Podcast. And and so I do think that we have to be willing to adapt to be able to tell those stories. Because there are news organizations, and as long as you have news organizations out there that are legitimate and that want to get the truth out, it is important for us to be able to go where people are. And I think to do a better job of reaching out to those communities that may have felt left behind and feel like no one's talking to them. Why aren't we telling stories that matter more uh, to people who aren't just the, uh, you know, we have these kind of buzzwords where we'll say, you know, working class, diner, you know, evangelical, all of that really means white, right? Blue collar white <laughs> um, that's what it means it's not that we shouldn't reach out to those people but that's what that's hard what working, we, that's hard working. <laughs> you know the average person just at home <laughs> you know that we have to reach out to those people but we also have to reach out to all of those other communities that don't necessarily fit into that one box to Black and Latino and all of these other communities that are out there that could be listening to the radio, buying, that are consuming the news and want news stories that they can relate to and that tell stories that they are interested in. And I think that news outlets often talk a lot about that. I don't feel that they always put their money and their resources where their mouth is. And I think that they should. Oh, I think you need to reach out if you want to survive and be relevant, reach out beyond just the audiences that you have always had.
3: Yeah, they're some of the biggest offenders. I mean, every if I need read another piece in the New York Times and Washington Post, where they're out in, the, in flyover country in some little town talking to working-class white people, as if there are no working-class Hispanic people or working-class black or brown people that, and, and just, it's like a reinforcement of cliches, it, it, it just drives me crazy.
2: It, it's, and, and it's just about, and it's not about not, it's not about ignoring certain groups, but it's about expanding, like it's not about excluding, but it's about expanding what, the work that we do.
1: So, this question is from the audience, the um, question reads, perhaps the most famous slogan about journalism is, is quote, all the news that's fit to print who determines and how do you determine what is fit to print
2: that's a good question (laughs) (laughs) uh i and that and that has been hard because at times sometimes especially now you will have things that people say that are not true and so there's a question of do you report what this person said even if you have well first of all you have to ask the question do i have time to set out why this is not true and so i have to look if i'm doing a 30 second 40 second spot then i try to be very careful that if i'm going to have a clip in there that i'm not putting in a clip of someone saying something that is unverified or completely inaccurate or without context i try not to do that because in 40 seconds i'm not going to have time to say that's not true, to give you the reasons why in a really thorough manner. So really all I would be doing is just spreading this information. And what what I guess people, the experts that have studied this have said and what we sometimes do at NPR, we call it a true sandwich, where if you have to report something that someone says something's not true, you start it off and you say the truth, and then you say the untrue thing, and then you come back and you say the truth again, <laughs> and it's like a truth sandwich. Because the idea is that even when you're debunking something, you can still be spreading it. Mm-hmm. And that people still remember it, even if you're saying this you know, and it's that whole idea of, you know, if you're running for office or something, and you wanna say, yeah, my candidate, you know, my opponent, he's not a bank robber <laughs> like, but you're you're putting that in people's mind that wait is is he a bank robber like and so it's so I think that's the hard part is because you also want to correct the record if someone says something that's not true but you don't want to spread it and so there's this idea of what do we and then what do you want to elevate do you want to lift up Uh, the insults that this person has put out against somebody? Do you want to uh, lift up this thing, these accusations that are being made that don't seem to be grounded in anything? Do you want to lift up the latest outrage that may not actually be an outrage, but people are acting like they're very upset about it? And so I think it's something that we grapple with. I don't know that it's something that we always get right, but I think it's something that, I think that's a part of being, meeting this moment means thinking more about what we choose to print and how.
3: Yeah, I think, I think you're right about, um, I think we're getting better at it. I think we're calling out the lies more, but, you know, the question you raise about the impact of just even printing the, the lies and some people buying into the lies, I mean, we, you know, there are people out there who are going to believe that Mary Louise Kelly actually mistook Bangladesh for Ukraine. Ukraine, which is patently absurd. No one in this room would do that. But, you know, I think it's something we need to continue to grapple with. I mean, if you're in the newspaper business, at a local newspaper, all the news is fit to print. It has a lot of meaning because if, I, I should have bought a, like a, a copy of the Times Dispatch from, say, 1992, which would probably be, be about as wide as its chair, and today. Um, that, that news hole is a lot smaller, so, um, we've had to make some real hard choices. As you may have noticed, we've like, really focused on putting local news, we're leading with local news, and the A section is local news, and we're we're really kind of, that's gonna be a real challenge once, if this impeachment comes off in any kind of way, but, um, yeah, we, you know, it's it's just always, we have grappled with the issue of diversity, and and who makes the decisions of where the news goes, um, how prominent it is, where it's played, um, what gets prioritized. Um, you know, the problem, one of the problems with um, the downfall of newspapers, um, and probably media in general, from an economic standpoint, is we were the last hired. Um, there was a big diversity push um, that was going on right around the time I came into this career, or this profession, with very specific goals. Um, uh, long story short, the goals were that we were to represent on our staffs the compositions of the communities we covered. Um, it's gotten, it's, and then the, the, the economics fell out of the profession, and uh, the choices that were made did not service the perpetuation of diversity, and now uh, it's, it's probably worse or, or than when I came into the profession. The people who make decisions are not a diverse group of people. And the newsroom staffs are not representative of their community. And um, the news, the way the news is presented too often reflects that. So that's a challenge. You know, the decision making and who makes decisions is a challenge. Um, So we're just beset with all sorts of issues. And I keep repeating, it comes down to money, a lot of it. But um, that's what's driving it.
1: So the next question actually is about um, fake news and biases. So the the, the the question reads, we all have biases um, and this inevitably uh, impacts the choice of what we focus on or what a journalist focus on. Um, how do you manage your biases in selecting what to focus on and write about and, and let me add to that. I mean, how do you deal with the fact that we're in this world that? You say something that somebody don't like, they just immediately respond, big news, and try to discredit you.
2: So I do think that obviously as a journalist, you don't take your, your brain out and set it on the shelf or your personality or your background or anything like that. So you all, you come to any story or anything like, or any beat bringing your whole self. And so I may look at things differently than someone else. Uh, in our newsroom. I do think that we obviously have editors and people around and this, who are helping to guide coverage and what we decide to cover and how we cover it. And for the most part, well really, in, in my experience in journalism, people are try to be very cognizant that they are being fair to the story that they're presenting, meaning being fair to the people that they're covering to the the subject that they're covering, that they are presenting the various viewpoints. Uh, the challenge at this point is you, at this point you will get two different criticisms. So you will get the criticism that you are both siding things, that you are kind of drawing false equivalences uh, between Um, different actors or in a story that you are you know that there is one truth and that when you kind of say well the republicans say this and the democrats say that you're just doing this both sides thing and so you're not really giving proper uh, heft to the truth then you'll have this other side that feels like you're all liberal hacks (laughs) as one lawmaker called one of of my congressional colleagues or a congressional reporter and that you have this bias and you're just totally unfair to um, conservatives and all of this and that you are just, um, you're out to get President Trump and that you are just totally unfair. And so I think it's very hard to, you're not gonna please both of those sides. Like if if you, if there's this side that feels like you're being too easy on President Trump, you're, you guys are just all in his pocket, you want your access, and then you have this side that feels like you've never been fair to him, you just won't give him a you know, a fair shake. It's very hard to please both of those groups, and I think it's really impossible, and both of those groups may feel very strongly that they are dealing with a media that has bad intentions or that is acting irresponsibly. Uh, And so I think that is very difficult to grapple with. I think that what we try to do is say, look, what, and what I try to do is say, I am going to report the news that is, that I feel like is important, that I feel like is relevant, and I'm going to try to be fair, regardless of whether people like it, I will try to be fair, and I will try to give if this person is giving their view, the best view of their argument, meaning like this is what they are, this is what they are saying, this is what their position is. You don't have to agree with their position, but this is their position, and that's what I try to do. Does that really get at the heart of what of this idea of bias and how you address that? I, I, I'm not sure, but I, I think that is something that. It's something that you have to continually think about and be willing to to challenge yourself on, and to challenge. But I also think audiences also need to challenge themselves on what they expect from media.
3: Great, I think um, people are always working the refs.
0: <laughs>
3: our readers, our viewers are always working the refs on both sides. You know, there are progressives who feel like I'm not progressive enough. There are people on the other side who feel like I'm the worst racist ever. Um, the whole argument to me is almost nonsensical because it, it, it presupposes that, that we live in an environment, in a nation, in a history that's not inherently biased. You know, when was this great? era of journalistic fairness and balance and bias because I've missed it and I, you know, and you know, whole, covers, whole communities went uncovered and whole people of color in communities went uncovered back in the day. And it, it's, it, there's always been bias because as far as I know, the news has always been reported by humans. Um, so the journalists I know, the vast majority of them do their best to put their biases aside and get both sides of the story and be fair. Now, we can't pretend both sides of the story are inherently equal either. There's one side and then there, there are times we know we're being biased. <laughs> I mean, but you do the free report it, but it's just not all sides of the, I mean, um, when John Chancellor was standing there covering um, Uh, the folks in Little Rock who were trying to desegregate the schools and and, and there were like mobs behind them shouting the N-word and and acting the fool. You're going to give equal weight to both of those sides? I mean, how do you cover any social justice movement if you're – so it's it's not what we're about. Um, I I mean, I think, you know, we're – again, we keep coming back to the word truth. You know, I think – Fiction writers seek truth, Nonfiction writers, journalists are seeking truth. You know, what we write doesn't always turn out to be the unequivocal truth, but we're in search of it. We have to present it in a way that all sides are represented, it's fair, but we are trying to get at the truth.
1: So, last question from the audience. Um, It's a question about the tricks of the trade. So, I, I think this wording of this is actually hilarious. I'll just read it. Um, how do you handle the disagreement and cursing when the candidate does not like what you're asking? I'm going to the that to the candidate or a public official or other person you're <laughs> trying to get information from.
2: How do you, so, I will say, like <laughs> we were I said, we talked about
3: this earlier. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, I haven't been cursed at. So, I, I, I really. I, you know, I've been in journalism for a while, but I haven't actually, no one's ever cursed me out, so I don't know how I would respond if someone cursed me out. Um, I hope I would respond well, but, <laughs> um, so I think that I, I haven't experienced that, but I have experienced, obviously, you ask questions, people don't like them, or people, you know, come back at you kind of aggressively. I. I always worried that I wouldn't be able to respond in those situations. I, I feel like when they have happened, I have been able to respond. I think you get in a zone in a way where if you have a, a if you have a question that you are trying to get the answer to, and what I have found is when I have a question I'm trying to get the answer to, then I'm just. I'm going to keep going <laughs> until you at least give me some type of answer. And it doesn't matter if you don't like it, it doesn't matter if you have an attitude, it doesn't matter if you are frustrated. I'm going to at least, you know, make my point and as make my point in getting that question out. Like and so I don't know if there's really a trick to it. I think most people I think generally in the past nowadays and I always say this nowadays people are more journalists are more likely to call you out like if you do I think in the past politicians or people would call journalists up and fuss them out and I think journalists were more likely to just keep it to themselves or if someone said something to them that was out of line I think now you're like you're more likely to end up on Twitter um, if, you, if you say something that's really out of a line to journalists, especially younger journalists coming up, they don't feel this need to make sure that they're protecting this or protecting their relationship with this source. They will just say, this person said this to me and, you know, I, all I was doing was asking a question. Um, I I will say that I don't think, uh, you know, going back to the situation with Mary Louise Kelly where, you know, the Secretary of State was trying to say that was off the record. I I don't believe that she says it was not off the record, and I believe her. It wasn't off the record. and And off the record is an agreement. I do say for anyone out there, you cannot use off the record to curse someone out. In my opinion, (laughs) you you cannot go off the record, say off the record, and then say you want to curse me out. That's not what off the record is about. You cannot do that. That's not that's not the way it works.
3: (laughs) Then we have a situation a few years ago where an elected official or a candidate somewhere out in Montana, somewhere, actually attacked. Yes. Physically attack yeah, yeah, a body journalist.
2: body slammed a journalist. Yeah. yeah, body slammed. That's not happening.
3: <laughs> uh, I mean, that's you know, it's you know, we we are professionals. We are trained to be professional, to behave professionally. Professionalism's is a two-way street. Um, we don't go up and curse out elected officials or or, or, or whatnot. And, and the very least we can expect in return is not to be treated that way. You know, i like to be, i like to treat people like I myself would like to be treated. Um, I don't think it's an accident that a lot of these situations we're talking about involve women. I think this is a form of intimidation and, and bullying, it's misogynistic and, and that makes it doubly wrong and coming from people of power, um, like Secretary of State, it, it just makes it inexcusable. So yeah, it needs to be called out. So.
1: One more comment from the audience, this is directed for Michael Paul. I'm gonna read this aloud at the risk of embarrassing you because I think you see your editor in the audience. Um, It says, Mr. Williams, you cannot ever retire. (laughs) (laughs) So, So, last question is for the students in the audience. And an implicit, and maybe occasionally, explicit promise. University of Richmond makes to its students that they will have a better chance of reaching productive employment if they attend our fine institution and graduate. <laughs> um, what is your pitch for going into journalism that you would make to these students out here? So, <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I, I think journalism—it is having a tough time, uh, especially at the local level, and but i do think as i said in the beginning that it is worthwhile and it's and it is an important profession and it is a necessary profession for this society for any democracy Uh, and so i think it's important work and i don't think it's work that you should go into if it's your second or third choice i think it's, (laughs) you know if you got you know i think that Really, if this is something that you are passionate about and you are driven and you just cannot see yourself doing anything else, this is uh, the job for you. It's not going to be easy. I certainly can't guarantee that everything will go the way you would want it to go. But if, if that is the description of you, like I just can't see myself doing anything else, give it a try. And I think that what I always say is take advantage of any opportunity you have to write, to report, uh, to be in the presence of journalists, to, if you want to do radio, if you want to do TV, anything that comes up, uh, even if it's just, you know, an afternoon class or or, or just a quick session or just a time or just a a moment to get FaceTime with someone because you never know when that, where that could lead. And you never know where that small opportunity, that thing that wasn't supposed to end up being a job could go. And so, that's kind of what happened. That's how I ended up at Reuters. I took a business reporting class. There was no internship or anything attached to it, but the people at Reuters saw my work and I ended up getting an internship. And so, it was an opportunity that wasn't necessarily supposed to be an opportunity, but turned into something that kind of changed the course of my life. And so, I would say, if you want it, go after it and, and just be willing to, you know, take advantage of anything that you see or any opportunity that you think could help you learn more about journalism.
3: Thank you. It's the best job in the world. <laughs> I mean, maybe the NBA. <laughs> but i um, like 5'11". I mean, Aisha, I mean, can you imagine the story she'll have for her children or grand? I mean, just, it's. I mean, just at this point in history, having covering, covered what she's covering, I mean, it's the access, just being at those pivotal points in the history of a community, of a state, of a nation, um, it opens doors. I mean, I've met people I never would have met. Um, and they take you seriously. Uh, there's there's still enough respect for the profession and the institutions that you work for that they do. Um, you get to um, express your creative side. Um, you meet the most interesting people you've ever met are journalists. I'm sorry, it's just <laughs> or, or, or artist. It's 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 just a wonderful wonderful profession. The job insecurity is notwithstanding, um, but you also get to be heroes, because, I mean, I'm part of the waiver journalist that came in right after Watergate. You know, we saved this nation once, we're going to save it again.
0: Please join me again in thanking Thad, Aisha, and Michael for such a wonderful, wonderful presentation. I have have to protest just a little bit. I've never been a journalist. I'm sure it's a fine, very fine, fine uh, (laughs) profession. But being the dean or a professor at the University of Richmond is also a really good (laughs) job. Uh, Please join us now in the gallery for some more conversation and reception. Uh, Thank you very much.